Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I had a chance to catch up with Milton Yarberry. Milton is the Director of Medical Programs with Integrated Computer Solutions. Check out Integrated Computer Solutions by visiting ICS.com. Three letters, real easy. We talked a little bit about IVDs and kind of compared and contrast an IVD or in vitro diagnostic with a medical device. How is it a medical device? How is it not? What are the similarities? What are the differences? You know, in my mind, it's, I don't want to say it's always been clear, but it's been clear for a while when I see an, an IVD, I'm like, that's it. Sometimes it's hard to describe. And uh, the good news is, uh, you know, through the course of talking with Milton, I think we've got some, some practical tips and pointers and advice for how to determine that. But also, you know, if you are an IVD company, what are some things that, that should be focuses for you with respect to regulatory compliance, quality systems, and things of that nature? So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Joining me today is Milton Yarberry. Milton is the Director of Medical Programs at Integrated Computer Solutions. So, Milton, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, John. So, you and I were catching up just a little bit ago, and you offered a topic that I thought was really intriguing. And the topic is IVD, or in vitro diagnostic, and medical device. How are they the same? How are they different? And and you started to to share some of your learnings. I'm like, hold on, Milton, this this would be great content for us to talk about on the medical device. So I thought, you know, maybe we can explore that a little bit more in depth because you know, my own experience, I've worked in both or uh, with both. In my mind, it's sort of clear, but then again, at the same time, it's pretty fuzzy at the same time. So maybe a good place to start is IVD. What is it? Maybe what is it not? Maybe that would be a good place uh, for you to, to start to dive in, and then we can start to peel back layers of this. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and I should even say, you know, as a precursor, you know, this is, I, I consider myself largely a medical device guy, but recently into uh, IVDs. And so I'm sort of describing this as from that perspective, you know, from somebody who is coming from one to the other, noting the differences. But yeah, for the people who who aren't as familiar or maybe have a fuzzy idea around IBD, it's IBD stands for in vitro diagnostics. So this is a kind of a a fancy name for a test machine. So this is going to be like in the news now. Of course, there's COVID and uh, the PCR test machines that uh, are the ones that are the good test um, that tell you whether or not you have. Uh, uh, COVID. But gen- more generally, this consists of like reagents, instruments, systems that are used for the diagnosis of disease or, or other conditions, even health, as it were. So typically, this would be things like uh, HIV, flu, hepatitis, diabetes, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Man, I guess the way I, I kind of think about it, and, and um, feel free to, to critique my uh, layperson explanation, is... <laughs> I always think of like an IVD, there's usually some sort of equipment or analyzer of some sort that's involved, Um, but it's not typically uh, an invasive from a patient perspective. I I usually think of it as 
usually there's some sort of sample of some sort that's involved, exactly. uh, saliva, urine, blood, or something along those lines that's taken from the patient. So, you know, I guess depending on how you get that sample, some may say that's invasive, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, the IVD itself is taking that sample, puts it through some sort of chemistry or some sort of analysis and that sort of thing to, to determine the results of, of that, that particular test. Exactly. And uh, right. That's the key difference is there's no patient, you know, right. in, there is a sample. And to that end, you know, the scope of the IVD includes kind of the whole ball of wax collection of that sample, um, as well as, you, you know, uh, preparing it for analysis and then, of course, the actual analysis. So that's maybe one of the key differences here, patient versus no patient. Um, and instead, your proxy for the patient is this thing called a sample. And obviously, you know, whereas in medical devices, you're worried about the safety of the patient. In this case, it's more like protection of the samples and <laughs> not, not to let the information get out. Um, but but just on the fidelity and accuracy of the test of the sample. Right. I mean, I, I know this is oversimplifying, but, you know, the, and there is risk. So don't, and, and this is one of the things that kind of, I, I think I've heard um, from time to time. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm an IVD company. There's really no, I don't have any risk to patient. Like, well, you kind of do because what if the, uh, the, you take the sample, it's analyzed and the results that are provided are incorrect, you know, and, right. and exactly false positive, false negative. What, what, what does that mean? There is risk. Uh, but I think to, to, you know, if you think about it from a pure patient interaction perspective, you can say, Oh, my risk is pretty minimal, but what is your test doing? You know? Exactly, exactly. And then for that reason, interestingly enough, like the, the, the risk-based categorization that the FDA does on these devices is actually around what is it that you're testing for? Mm -hmm. So it no longer becomes, you know, how dangerous is the technology because if the machine breaks down, it becomes more, are you testing for something that is a you know, non-life-threatening disease or a life-threatening disease? So. Yeah, and just to kind of help people wrap their heads around it, I mean, to me, it's some classic uh, IVD examples. I, I think a lot of people can can probably visualize the the at home blood uh, glucose meters where you you do the finger right. check and you put the, the drop of blood on on the test strip and you put it in the little analyzer and you know it gives you an idea of what your insulin level is. I think another example is you know like a home pregnancy test is is probably I guess I don't know this, but I would assume that that's probably considered a type of IVD as well. Granted there's no uh, equipment, it's it's a pretty simple uh chemistry type of thing, but um and you know I, I haven't actually looked those up, but I've been working primarily on the ones that go that are sort of replacing labs or at point of care at yeah. a physician's office. But the interesting thing is, of course, in, in the examples you mentioned, there is a, there is a user, there, there is a patient involved. And IVDs are sort of strictly the domain of there is no patient involved. Sure. Now, whether the, the test is considered a therapy, I think, is, is, is probably where that gets parsed along. Um, right. But, but the, the, the ones that, that, I, that I think of typically are, you know, these are big, either big lab machines, you know, the size of a, a small closet or a big closet where like it's processing thousands of samples right on down to these little, if you ever see them in the back office, yeah, little yeah. devices about that big. You have a little cartridge or a stick or something you put in there. The difference being the, the operator on that device um, is uh, some form of, well, I won't say clinician because a lot of them aren't licensed clinicians. Right. They are lab people. So because of that, there's a whole category 
of regulation for labs that applies to them. Right. And, and so, you know, you get into like good laboratory practice, I'm, I'm sure, right? And CLIA yep. probably is involved, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wow. CLIA is an interesting one because for these point of care machines that are going to go at, you know, CVS or your drugstore or doctor's office, um, they want to be this thing called CLIA waived. And CLIA waived means that um, basically we've dumbed down the interface, probably perhaps dumbed down is the wrong term. We've simplified the interface and made it sort of bulletproof so that um, even somebody who isn't trained on the machine won't accidentally misinterpret the result. So almost like binary. It's, it's either black or exactly. white or red or green or whatever. The, you know, the, 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 it's, it's very obvious as to the outcome of that rather than just spitting and, out numbers and somebody has to interpret where that goes on a chart and what that means. It, it, exactly. And yet at the same time, it's, it, it's both that simple and also it, being that simple, it's, it's somehow still complex because there's you know, gray in everything, meaning uh, a test might not run to completion. A test may have an, an, an invalid result. It may have a, a result that doesn't uh, make sense. There are internal controls in these systems uh, that, that may have a marginal result. So all of a sudden, they're still gray. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you and I have had some conversations in the past uh, where we, we delved into uh, things like human factors. Um, right. This seems like, I don't know how the right way to describe it, but almost like a human factors uh, expert, this is like a, a kid in a candy store type of opportunity because there's all sorts of challenges there, I would assume. Exactly. And uh, like the standard 62-366, which is, you know, base, it takes a risk-based approach for designing of, of uh, for usability, really. Right. Um, so this is a prime candidate for that. If you have a machine, I think they actually cite in the regulation that, you know, a CLIA wave machine is supposed to uh, like cater to like an eighth grade reading level. Hmm. So I think they actually specify that. Um, which means that, yeah, it, it, it clearly gives you a target population, a way they're going to use it, a way they can misinterpret it, and all those should become mitigations in your design. Sure. I mean, and, you know, going back to my example of the blood uh, glucose meter, that information has to be crystal clear um, because, you know, the, the user population in that case is, well, it could be, could be a child, could be, True. Could be an, an elderly person, could be somebody with good eyesight, could be somebody with poor eyesight, um, but they have to know what that what that means. Like because right. if I do take the wrong action or misinterpret and take the wrong action, that could lead to death. You know, so you know, I think this is a, a, uh, an example where uh, an IVD product is not uh, without risk. But even within the lab environment, even if it's if it's a CLIA waived there's still risk. Somebody still has to, it has to be clear to that person what that means. Right, right. And, and, and the even more sort of dangerous part of this is that, you know, it's not all in the machine. Right. It's how did you collect that sample? Um, you know, having yeah. gone for a couple of COVID tests lately, um, how long was that swab up your nose? You know? And did it go far enough? <laughs> did it hit the back of your head? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because if it didn't, it could, it could give, uh, you know, you think, oh, it was in there long enough. It was, it was uh, inserted far enough. Uh, and then it goes to get analyzed and, and it's like, oh, no big deal. Right. But, right. Right. Uh, but, it, but if it, but if it wasn't in far enough, because there's, 
there's no clear indicator of uh, other than the um, as as a friend of mine uh, uh, mentioned um, who administers these. She said um, you can tell um, that you hit the right spot if the person wants to punch you. So <laughs> I was going to say because there's brain there's brain tissue. Well, you can't count on that. May not you know <laughs> may not be present conditions. <laughs> All right, so. So that that is the twist, I think, from an IVD perspective. That that you know, I'll say the classic medical device, um, you know, just doesn't. It's not in that realm, you know. But but I think there's some some areas that where there's. Well, I guess maybe we should explore this a little bit. So from um, where are they the same, right? And and you mentioned some right. equipment and things like that. I'm like, oh, well, that that sounds like you know, a classic electromechanical device from, from, a, from a medical device perspective. But I know this is your world. You, you deal with design and development and, and that sort of thing. But how are they the same from a manufacturing perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, starting from like the top, right. So uh, an IVD is, an, is a medical device. It's just a subcategory of medical device. Um, it's subject to same pre-market and post-market controls as a regular medical device. It, it needs a quality system. And there's a similar sort of risk-based classification device. The risk in the case of the uh, medical device, more broad spectrum, it's in terms of patient harm and in terms of user harm. Uh, whereas in the IVD, it's around what is it that you're testing for? It's around the assay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so a couple of things there. So uh, quality system, and I think this is confusing to... Uh, a lot of people that I've talked to over the past several years who are IVD companies, they seem, will go with confused with respect to why they need a quality system. And, and I think your point is, is really well stated is an, an IVD is a medical device. It's just a certain right. type of medical device. And it's, it's, an IVD is analogous to uh, an orthopedic implant. They're both right. medical devices. They just have different, different, modes of, 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 of functions and, and intended use and method of delivery and, 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 and that sort of thing. But they're both under med- medical device. So from an FDA perspective, that says uh, 21 CFR Part 820 is applicable to both of you. Uh, and if you're outside the U.S., ISO 13485 is applicable to both of you. And I think that that's not clear to a lot of IVD companies. And, I have and, and what suspicions as to why? But I, go ahead, I'll, I'll chime in on that here. In a oh, moment. oh, oh, no, let's hear. It. Suspicions are good. Let, let's hear that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of a lot of uh, IVD, and this is probably an, an overgeneralization, but I think a lot of IVDs probably originated in a laboratory somewhere, maybe by huh. a researcher uh, in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes folks who have that skill set—I mean, they're they're amazing people. But they don't always, um, they're not always commercialization type people. They're not always okay. um, regulatory type people necessarily. They just are trying to figure out a, a way that is less invasive to, to do a task you know, through some sort of, you know, I'll say magic, i.e. chemistry, to be able to, to take a you know, small fluid sample of some sort analyze it and, and give these results. I mean, I, I, I liken it back. To, I, I actually happen to have a chemical engineering degree. I think you do too, don't you? No, no I'm, I'm doubly so <laughs> electrical engineering, but yeah. <laughs> but I, I took a lot of chemistry uh, in school and I remember taking a lot of analytical chemistry and, and it seems like analytical chemistry and IVD, like they're, they're partners in some way, shape or form. Yeah, because, definitely. You know, 
they're, you're taking it through all this analysis and you're like, oh, look at this peak on this FTIR. And that means that there's this thing. And I'm like, okay, if you say so. But, you know, I think it's, it's a little more like there's definitely science involved, but to the layperson, it, it seems like a little bit more black magic. But I think it's hard to translate some of, of that, that science, that research, that clinical, that laboratory side of things into something that's commercialized or, and into something that's regulated. I think there's just a disconnect there. I think it's just this mm. and, and origin of how those products can be. That's my, my take. I could be way off, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Well, well yeah, just, just in terms of like, uh, I have been surprised to see, you know, people who have been in this space a long time, you know, sizable companies, also, also uh, smallish companies, but people who have worked in the industry a long time, uh, have them momentarily struggle with it. It's it, it's funny the, the the way you mentioned uh, confused. I think it's is that the term you used. Yeah. Um, it almost does seem like uh, okay. Well, maybe we're class one because there's no patient involved or something. Yeah. Uh, some yeah. sort of optimism around that, and it's like no, no, no. It, you just have a different risk based system. It's based on the assay, but then. This is a bit of the ambiguity. This is the part where maybe I'm not even sort of uh, clear after working in both of these types of projects is the, the focus on the design controls for the software in a normal medical device is kind of, you know, intense. I think what happens is that on the, on the IVD side, uh, there's a lot of focus on clinical. So percent of IVDs yes. must have a clinical trial. Yes. Um, whereas like 10 or 15% of 510Ks do. So all the focus is on how are we proving it and what the analysis demonstrates, what sort of samples have we curated, which patient population, are we in flu season? All those factors sort of dominate their submission. And so maybe there's just less attention on the software side. Yeah, no, it's really, I hadn't thought of it in that, in that perspective before, but it makes a lot of sense. So, so to kind of play back what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is, is the emphasis <clears throat> is more on the outcome, uh, the result, the, the clinical. And, and the orchestration, the yeah. orchestration of that big clinical trial. Yeah. Right. And so in the, in that spirit, you know, the, the controlled design and development methodology just doesn't. I don't want to imply that it's not. There's not some methodology from a design and development perspective, but it's just not done in in a, a design control type construct that that a software as a med device or or a, a classic medical device might have followed or adhered to, to during that process. Yeah, and it, it, I see it uh, reflected in things like um, you know when you go to verification. Um, I'm used to with a medical medical device going to verification, the features are done, kind of period. You know, um, you're, you're not going to verification with anything that's uh, incomplete. On the IVD side, I think it's, it, it's somehow more forgivable because the features there don't affect a patient. You know, you add a button, you add a feature, it doesn't necessarily affect, it affects the person administering the test. Right. But it doesn't affect the assay. Anything having to do with the assay and the, the calculation, the analysis behind that, that is, you know, that's hollow ground. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, ground so. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the, the equipment used to analyze the, the assay is almost commoditized. Right, exactly. 
It's de-emphasized, yeah, yeah, in that regard. Hmm. All right. Well, I want to take a, a, a brief break. I want to remind everyone sure. I'm speaking with Milton Yarberry. Uh, Milton is the director of medical programs at Integrated Computer Solutions. Uh, you can find out more, a ton more about uh, Integrated Computer Solutions by visiting ICS.com. That's right, folks. It's a three-letter domain, so that tells you a little bit about how long uh, ICS has been around. But Milton, I thought you, you might have a few words to to you know, share with folks about some of the, the types of products and services that, that you do and, and help companies with. Sure, yeah. Um, um, it, you know, I, uh, thanks for pointing out the three-letter domain thing. That hadn't ever really occurred to me. Um, I wonder if IBM was taken at the time that they filed for that. Um, the, it's, so ICS, yeah, it's a company that's been around um, since the 80s, uh, late 80s. Um, uh, we have been uh, currently, you know, we're, we're, we're software consultants. Um, we're, we do full stack development. Um, uh, the majority of our business is in medical um, regulated, regulated space. Um, we have an offshoot of the company that specializes in, in usability and UX design. But our Zen, our, our methodology here, has to do with UX first. It has to do with um, when you're creating a product, you start with user interface you do that ahead of uh, design controls with prototypes in as much as you can. And then that shortens the entire development cycle if yeah. you have a fast means to go from UX to back-end software. So that's sort of our area of specialty. Yeah, and I, I think as it relates to the topic today, uh, you know, specifically with MedDevice, it's an, I don't want to say it's a no-brainer because uh, clearly there's still, as an industry, we have work to do with respect to user interface and and human factors and usability. But I think it's really, in my opinion, an underserved area specifically with IVD. I think sometimes we we don't, and I think it gets back to what you and I are talking about, uh, that that we don't realize that there's, IVD is is a medical device. And and I think a lot of times because of that, we, people haven't focused on the the user interface and the user experience and the usability and, and human factors thereof. So, Definitely check out ICS, www.ics.com. And I want to remind you, too, that uh, all of you listening, that Greenlight Guru, we're here to help as well. We have uh, the only medical device success platform in the industry. It's been designed specifically for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. Workflows to help you during design, development, risk, as well as post-market and all your documents and records. So check it out, www.greenlight.com. Guru to learn more. And we just launched a really exciting program uh, called the Greenlight Guru Academy. And this is a program where we have many courses on a variety of topics and more to come, uh, lots more in the queue. But we have a course that's it's free. It's, it's on design controls and another course that's free on risk management, some on regulatory submissions. We'll be adding more uh, courses to that. Uh, so check that out as well. Just search for Greenlight Guru Academy on our website and, and check it out. All right. So getting back into the conversation, Milton, I mean, we sort of danced uh, or we've talked actually a lot about it. We've done more than just dance around it. But the I think the other thing that creates some challenges, and I hinted at a little bit, and you, and you did a good job of explaining the clinical aspect, but I think, you know, things like lab developed tests, LDTs, um, even, you know, I, I've done some work over the years with a couple of different IVD type companies and they were, I don't know if it was the trying to be CLIA waived 
if that was the motivation or something else, but they're like, oh no, we're we're RUO or research use only. It's like they were trying to find like the the perceived simpler path from a regulatory perspective. Um, right. What do you have any thoughts? I think. I- yeah, I think the term I'm used to hearing is like investigative device. Yes, yeah, that's another term. I think these are all somewhat synonymous with one another. Right, right. And I mean, uh, investigative device, I think there, a lot of the focus is just around, um, you know, treating your, your uh, the people in your clinical trial <laughs> well and treating right. their data well. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a different route. It gets away from, you know, the, the design control um, auspices, if you will, um, in, in that this is the thing that you're testing for might be less, it might be more active in terms of what it is you're testing for and the end result that you're trying to get to. Whereas if you have an assay for a particular disease, it's very clear that you're going for a positive or negative on that. So Yeah. And, and some of these products, I think historically, and I think this adds to the, the overall confusion, a lot of these products are in that gray area where it's not clear how or if they are regulated. Um, and, you know, I remember back in the United States, probably about, let's go with about four, five or six years ago, something like that. Um, the, these these um, investigational uh, products are these, I think some people refer to them as these LDTs or lab developed tests. Many of them are like, you know, physicians' offices, they, they develop an assay or test uh, for, you know, whatever purpose or use. But that has largely or historically not been super regulated. Um, and there was a, a movement back, you know, several years ago where as, uh, FDA was going to pull them under regulation and then kind of backed off on that. So that's kind of mm-hmm. been an on and off again. Uh, I don't know have, if you've been paying attention over in the EU, but uh, we're a few months away or soon the EU MDR is live and then the IVDR goes into effect in May, 2022. And what I've heard in the EU is now that those new regulations are pulling a lot more things under regulatory control. And I think this is creating quite the stir in the industry. And and I feel like, you know, I, I am aware of that. I have been reading some of that and I am kind of, I keep looking for the analogous Thing to happen on the FDA side, and yeah. I'm not quite seeing the other it yet. Foot will drop, I think. I think the other foot will drop. I just don't know when. Do you think that they are waiting to see the outcome, or you know, is is it intentional, or is it just happenstance? Or I don't know. I mean, like when this was when they were talking about this uh, from the FDA perspective of several years ago. Uh, I don't know what was motivating that. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I think. In some respects, um, some could say, oh, it's financially motivated, which, you know, maybe more companies... It's easy to be cynical with that, yeah. More companies regulated, the more uh, establishment registration fees and and that sort of thing. Um, But I I think what's happening in the EU is, you know, sadly, there have been some some product issues and events in the marketplace that, that have caused some problems. Um, so I think that's, well, the rule rollout there has been less than smooth. So it, it, you know, can you point a finger back to that though, or, well, uh, yeah. And I, so what's going to happen on, on this side of the pond? I mean, nobody wants any sort of negative adverse event to drive changes in regulations. Right. It always um, makes terrible policy, right? It does make terrible policy, but 
conversely, um, if there if it's too wild west and there's not enough oversight and regulation, uh, then that's problematic. But then again, you have you have other provisions in place. I think in the United States, like CLIA, which is in, in a matter of speaking, I guess a form of oversight control. But, but how do you feel? So then, of course, you can't say all those uh, 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 terms and words without tripping on EUA. So how will EUA change the um, complexion of regulation after, you know, this obvious wave subsides? Yeah, I think that's still the big unknown. And maybe the first question is, how much longer will we be under EUA? No one knows right. the answer to that either, because the moment that that goes away, <clears throat> then all of these these companies, these products, uh, these, these tests, et cetera, et cetera, that were brought to market under the EUA, now the clock's ticking. You know, they may have to do right. to stay in the market. They're going to have to do something like a 510K or PMA or, or something of that nature. So I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be interesting. And I'm not sure if interesting is fascinating, uh, <laughs> exciting or terrifying, but nonetheless, there will be something, you know? Right, right. I, I think in the beginning, we were seeing more companies, um, you know, reaching for the EUA. Um, uh, with intent for like being temporarily in the market. And then as, you know, here we are like a year later and we're seeing more companies um, say, okay, we're going for EUA immediately, but we're following right up with a 510K so that- I think those are the smart companies, the the companies that are taking that approach. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, I, at this point, I can't envision launching an EUA only you know, the, no the timeline just seems too uncertain. So, I mean, and and I, I guess I don't know this. I'm speculating, but I can't imagine the FDA is is going to, in current state and time, take a UA EUA only uh, application without there being a a more defined strategy. As you know, we're going to do this first, five ten k, and then this, and then that. I, I just can't imagine FDA being that way. But you know, then again, that. FDA doesn't call me for advice, at least not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Give them time. Um, <laughs> the, um, y- y- I mean, also the evolving nature of the EUA. Yeah. Initially, it felt like it was so Wild West in terms of like email, you know, yes. initiator submission, you know, um, uh, God, if they would only do that on the 510k side, well, but, yeah. you know, as opposed to the, you must print it in duplicate, ship it, they'll never right. take a look at it, right. you know. Um, Plus digital form, right? Absolutely. All right. So, Mel, we've we've sort of covered quite a few nuances and, and intriguing aspects from an IVD perspective. I guess before we wrap things up today, any other final thoughts, tips, pointers, advice? Um, I, I guess just yeah, wrapping back to um, the differences. Uh, Again, what sort of intrigued me about this topic was that there was sort of a partitioning between the two. Um, I think I saw it or read it someplace that people typically work in medical devices or IVDs, but they don't cross over. And it made me wonder, why don't people cross? I mean, they have so much in common. IVD is a medical device. All that should be directly transplantable. The answer I came to was that uh, basically it's a mindset of the manufacturer that I think is, is, mm-hmm. is the main difference. Um, whereas on the IVD, again, I'm a medical device guy, you know, looking at IVD um, or, or who has done IVD now, but um, I see that on that side of the fence, you know, uh, the clinical trials, those things, it, result, it revolves around the analytical fidelity of the assay. Um, they're looking for valid evidence, protocol design, 
uh, hypothesis formulation, um, sample curation, stored versus live versus simulated, performance goals, confidence intervals, let's say CT data integrity. Um, for example, like their clinical trials, they, they need to uh, be performed across at least three uh, geographically different sites. Mm-hmm. You know, that brings a whole nother level of epidemiology awareness mm-hmm. that you don't get in most medical devices. For most medical devices, it's, all, uh, it's usually a company that specializes in a certain therapy, and it's about applying that therapy and patient safety. Whereas in IVD, it's, you know, sample collection, transport handling, sample, you know, you know preparation, and a, a unique sort of uh, link between safety and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So where there's no patient interaction and uh, uh, safety relates to the false positives or, or negatives. So I think that's the primary thing that separates these two, and it makes it difficult for the crossover. They're like, is similar enough to be um, to, to, to sort of be uh, mistaken for one another, and they're different enough to be confusing. For sure, I mean, I, and I, I think you know part of it is like there are some overarching uh, regulations that govern both, but then there's some nuances that are like couldn't be further apart from one another. It's, exactly, it's, it's, right. a, it's a really uh, insightful uh, look at that. So. Milton, I appreciate all your time and, and, and the thought-provoking conversation and, and diving in a little bit deeper on this. Uh, again, I want to remind folks, Milton Yarberry, Director of Medical Programs, Integrated Computer Solutions. Uh, he has a ton of expertise on user interface and user experience, as does the ICS team. Uh, so a great uh, resource to have in your corner. Check them out, www.ics.com. Uh, as always, thank you for being listeners and, and maybe even now viewers of the Global Medical <laughs> Device Podcast. If you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast where you normally have, that's fantastic. We've started to incorporate video as well. So uh, be on the lookout for future episodes. Thank you for keeping the Global Medical Device Podcast as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And as always, this is your host and founder at Green Guru, John Spear. And uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you.